0: Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchange's World News Roundup for Thursday, June 22nd, 2023. Uh, there's a couple of anniversaries. On June 22nd, 1527, a force from the Javanese Demak Sultanate, under its commander Fatah liberated the port of Sunda Kelapa from the Portuguese and renamed it Jayakarta. Uh, gosh, I wonder... Whatever happened to that place. Uh, on June 22nd, 1593, local Ottoman forces from the Iolet of Bosnia were routed by a Habsburg army at the Battle of Sisak. Uh, to place this geographically, Sisak is located in central Croatia today. Uh, this was one of the first serious defeats the Ottomans suffered in the Balkans, and the Ottomans' desire for retaliation contributed to the 1593 to 1606 long war against the Habsburgs. Uh, There are some historians who will just lump Sissac in uh, as sort of the first battle of that war. Others put some separation between the two. Anyway, that war ended, uh, which is relatively common for Ottoman Habsburg conflicts, uh, ended indecisively. Uh, on to the news in the Middle East in Yemen. Uh, Yemeni rebels in the Saudi-led coalition that opposes them exchanged 64 bodies of their uh, dead fighters on Wednesday. This is apparently the third such exchange in recent days, at least according to rebel media reports, which, if accurate, is another small but unmistakable sign that the parties are still making some progress toward a resolution to their conflict. In Turkey, the Turkish central bank on Thursday sharply raised its primary interest rate to 15%. This was a sudden increase of 6.5 percentage points. Uh, We don't typically track central bank interest rate activity here, uh, but this move is in keeping with standard central bank operating procedure. Uh, Given Turkey's persistently high inflation, uh, what you do according to the orthodox uh, solution is you raise interest rates at times of high inflation. Uh, But nevertheless, that indicates a significant policy shift for newly re-elected Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, Over his two-plus decades in power, Erdogan has favored maintaining low interest rates even during periods of high inflation, favoring high growth uh, over low uh, low inflation, sort of preferring, uh, I guess, or valuing high growth uh, over low inflation. He suggested, however, uh, during his recent presidential campaign that he might be ready to give economic orthodoxy a try, and Thursday's move would be in keeping. With that campaign rhetoric. Uh, in Asia and Afghanistan, uh, the head of the UN's humanitarian mission in that country, uh, Rosa Otunbayeva, told the UN Security Council on Thursday that the Afghan Taliban's decision to ban women from virtually all aspects of public life had made it, quote, nearly impossible that their government will be recognized by members of the international community, end quote. Uh, Multiple pitches from the UN and from international humanitarian NGOs have apparently not swayed Taliban leadership toward relaxing that ban. Aside from the principle involved, banning women from humanitarian work has made it logistically impossible for the UN and those NGOs to reach female-headed households in need of support. In India, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi kicked off his state visit to the U.S. on Thursday with, his, with an address to the U.S. Congress—this was his second, uh, which is a true rarity for a foreign leader to address the U.S. Congress more than once—in uh, which he sought to, quote, celebrate the bond between the world's two great democracies, India and the United States, end quote. Uh, this is a r- relationship he characterized as, quote, a defining partnership of this century because it serves a larger purpose— end quote. That's really stirring stuff. And meanwhile, uh, according to Murtaza Hussain uh, at The Intercept, in India, uh, i just read you a little quote here from his piece. Uh, While Modi's visit has been touted as the blossoming of a friendship between two of the world's largest democracy, democracies, the rosy optics have clouded out a darker story, the increasingly grim fate of Indian political prisoners, including many well-known to Western non-governmental organizations and media establishments under the right-wing Modi government. A long list of Indian civil society members are currently languishing. In the country's prisons. Perhaps the most emblematic example is, example is Khoram Parvez, a Kashmiri human rights activist and chair of the Asian Federation Against Involuntary Disappearances. Parvez, 45, has for years been at the forefront of documenting human rights violations in Kashmir, particularly torture, extrajudicial ju- detention, and mass killings during a long-running insurgency in the territory. He was arrested in November 2021 amid a broader Indian government crackdown and has been in prison ever since. His arrest has not gone entirely unnoticed, Time Magazine in 2022 named Parvez on their list of the 100 most influential people in the world, calling him, quote, a modern-day David who gave a voice to families that lost their children to enforce disappearances allegedly by the Indian state, end quote. Despite his prominent status, the fate of Parvez and others like him has not figured much into the celebratory pronouncements about the U.S.-India relationship, although the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention recently criticized his detention and called for his release. No major U.S. human rights organization has issued a statement about Parvez' time to Modi's high-profile U.S. visit. That silence has had a chilling effect with repercussions far beyond his own fate. Uh, that's the end of uh, the excerpt. Modi spent much of the day being feted at the White House. Uh, this includes a state dinner Thursday evening uh, where U.S. President Joe Biden spoke glowingly of the bilateral relationship using language similar to Modi's. Uh, I don't want to discount anybody's notions of epic partnerships or grand purposes or whatever, but this is very much a transactional relationship as the U.S. gets into with all sorts of human rights abusers around the world uh, rooted in U.S. efforts to isolate both China and Russia. Among the tangible issues Modi is here to talk about are potential U.S. investments in India's semiconductor industry, the better to compete with China, and the sale of advanced U.S. military hardware, the better to pull India away from its military partnership with Russia. On to China asked about his inexplicable decision to insult Chinese President Xi Jinping on Tuesday. This is something we talked about in yesterday's newsletter. One day after Secretary of State Antony Blinken had met with Xi and seemed to get the U.S.-China relationship back on some sort of even keel, uh, Biden didn't make it any less inexplicable. He told reporters that, quote, "...the idea of my choosing and avoiding saying what I think is the facts with regard to the relationship with China is just not something I am going to change very much." end quote. In other words, he's going to blurt out what he blurts out, and that's that. Uh, Biden also said he didn't believe that his remarks, quote, had any real consequence, end quote, which may be true. uh, But A, he doesn't really know that. And B, then why take the risk? Uh, It's not like sticking that zinger into his fundraiser speech on Tuesday actually accomplished anything. Moving on to Africa and Sudan after another temporary ceasefire that never fully materialized and then ended on Wednesday morning uh, with a flurry of violence between the Sudanese military and rapid support forces. Uh, the U.S. government has decided to pack up its mediation effort. U.S. Sec- Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs Molly Fee told a U.S. House Foreign Affairs subcommittee on Thursday that the U.S. Uh, that the State Department uh, quote-unquote adjourned the negotiations they've been co-hosting with Saudi Arabia for the past few weeks due mostly to their failure to achieve much of anything. It sounds like the plan now is to sanction the combatants into negotiating in good faith. According to Fee, Washington is pressuring Europe European and regional partners to join it in this effort. In Mali, the Permanent Strategic Framework for Peace, Security, and Development, which is a coalition of dormant Tuareg rebel groups, has reportedly informed the country's ruling junta that if the UN agrees to close down its peacekeeping operation, that would strike a fatal blow, that's their 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 words, fatal blow to the peace deal that ended the rebels' 2012 to 2015 uprising in northern Mali. Uh, as we covered on Tuesday, the junta is demanding an end to the UN presence in Mali, which has failed to prevent metastasizing jihad militancy, but has also been defending some major northern cities from the militants. So their withdrawal could have serious consequences, and it sounds like the, uh, these Tuareg groups are aware of that. In Nigeria, at least 16 people were killed in two more intercommunal attacks in that country's plateau state on Tuesday. Both incidents appear to be linked to the spate of farmer herder violence uh, that has gripped that province and left more than 200 people dead over the past six, give or take, weeks. Uh, in Europe, in Russia, it appears that Wagner Group boss Yevgeny Prigozhin is still bickering with the Russian military, even though his fighters are no longer on the, on the front line in Ukraine. He's claiming that Russian military officials are lying to President Vladimir Putin about, quote, very serious losses on the front, end quote, a claim that is, of course, impossible to verify. Prigozhin may be chafing against a new order from the Russian government obliging private military firms like his to sign contracts with the defense ministry by July 1st. First, so far, Prigozhin has not followed that order. Uh, In Ukraine, an apparent Ukrainian missile strike on Thursday hit the Chonhar Road Bridge, one of a handful of bridges connecting the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian mainland. Uh, Ukrainian officials haven't commented on this, but the Russian-appointed governor of occupied Kherson Oblast, Vladimir Saldo, released video purportedly showing the aftermath of the incident. The Ukrainians would be targeting bridges to and from Crimea in an effort to disrupt Russian supply lines and thereby weaken Russian defensive positions amid the Ukrainian military military's ongoing counter-offensive on to the Americas in Panama. Panama Canal Administrators, uh, administrators excuse me, announced on Wednesday that they are limiting certain types of container cargo ships to a maximum depth of forty three point five feet. This is the latest in a series of depth limits imposed on canal traffic this year due to an ongoing drought that is reducing water levels. Further restrictions may be imposed next month unless that drought starts to break. Reductions in maximum depth force ships to uh, that are intending to transit the canal to carry. Essentially, carry less cargo, which in turn can contribute to supply chain delays. Uh, it should be noted that around 3.5 uh, percent, which doesn't sound like much on one hand, but but is actually an incredibly large amount uh, of all global trade passes through the Panama Canal each year. Uh, and in the United States, finally, uh, at the nation uh, Jeet here. Uh, writes about the investigation into the bombing of the Nord Stream gas pipelines uh, and doesn't like what the latest revelations in that investigation say about the U.S.-Ukraine relationship. I'll just read you a couple of paragraphs from his piece. The new revised CIA narrative, if one pieces together various newspaper accounts, goes something like this. In June 2022, intelligence agencies in the Netherlands got wind of an alleged Ukrainian plot against the Nord Stream pipeline. The CIA then asked the Ukrainians to stop the bombing. The Ukrainians promised to shut down the operation, but in reality just reorganized it with a new leader. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was reportedly left out of the loop so he wouldn't be implicated. One obvious response to this narrative is skepticism. After all, if Zelensky were given plausible deniability, couldn't the same protection be given to the CIA? Perhaps the Ukrainian government's promise not to bomb the pipeline was made with the tacit understanding that both sides knew the promise was a fib or white lie. By this logic, something like Seymour Hersh's original claim would remain true. The Biden administration was party to the bombing but used the narrative of a rogue Ukrainian operation as a convenient fiction to cover for U.S. complicity. But if instead we take the new CIA narrative on its own terms as the literal truth, we have a terrifying scenario wherein the United States has an ally who is willing to engage in reckless, escalatory armed aggression. The United States, if the CIA is telling the truth, is underwriting a war with a nuclear rival that can no longer be controlled or contained. If de-escalation ever became a policy that the United States or NATO wanted to pursue, they could easily be thwarted by their ally. Uh, He goes on to cite some other Examples of the Ukrainians engaging in very high-risk behavior that one might think the U.S. or NATO would not uh, like the Ukrainians to be engaging in. Uh, so, I would recommend you uh, read the piece uh, in its entirety. I think there are some some troubling implications if you uh, play this out to that conclusion. I, I tend to be on the skepticism side. I think the CIA is uh, sort of playing a, a semantic game here, uh, and that the US knew this was knew that bombing was coming. But that's just my opinion. There is this other alternative that they really did, uh, in good faith, ask the Ukrainians to back off, and the Ukrainians refused, which, uh, as I say, uh, and if you read this piece, takes you in some very uh, disturbing directions so on that note on the on a disturbing note uh, for a change you know it's how we always end uh, but uh, with that that's all for us tonight uh, I do want to thank all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter and especially to thank those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers if you are paid foreign exchanges subscribers and are making it possible for this newsletter to exist you have my uh, extended gratitude uh, those of you who have not made the jump to paid subscriber, I would urge you, as I always do, to please consider it uh, and help support the newsletter. That would be uh, just wonderful. Um, With that, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.